Well, good morning, church. Uh, I love this church. I love worshiping together. Uh, I love that people use all their gifts to put things like uh, this together. Now, you might think this is set up for summer night camp, but this is actually for my sermon. Um, I've got a couple space illustrations, and I asked if they could whip up a little something to kind of go along with that. So that's why you have all this here. Uh, Grant suggested that I actually come out of the spaceship before I preach the sermon, but uh, I wasn't able to fit inside there quite, quite right. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I do actually have a space illustration to start us off. You know, it wasn't until about 500 years ago that people actually believed that the sun was the center of our solar system, right? Before that time, everyone assumed, well, the earth is the center of the solar system and everything else revolves around the earth. And of course, I think that's a wonderful statement of human nature. Like, of course, everything revolves around us. Like, why would anything revolve around anything else? You know, and you think, well, that's silly that people thought that. But I think we tend to think that every single day. Right? When I'm on my way to work and maybe I'm running a little late and there's traffic, I get upset. Why? Because I'm the center of the universe and everything is supposed to revolve around me getting where I need to go in the time that I need to get there. Or one of the kids spills, you know, milk on the carpet or something like that when we've got some place to go and I get upset. Why? Because I'm the center of the universe and how dare anything defy the fact that everything is supposed to go away the way I want it to. And I think sometimes, you know, as Christians, we can sort of get that confused. What's the center of attention when we come to gather? Are we the center of attention and that we're coming for us? Or is God the center of attention and we come to worship him? And I think that's what Paul's addressing here in Corinthians. The Corinthian church had turned the center of attention from God and everything that he had done for them in Christ to themselves. I come because I want to hear my favorite preacher. I come because I want to use the gifts that I have, and they're better than the gifts that you have. I come and I want to see my friends. I don't want to hang out with these other people, so I'm going to make sure when we celebrate communion that all of my friends are together and these other people are excluded. Right? What was the center of their attention? Themselves instead of God. And that's why Paul's writing this letter to remind them the center of attention is God. And it serves as a reminder to us that the earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is the center of the solar system. We're not the center of attention. God should be the rightful center of attention. So let's read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 23, and then we'll pray. Verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. 
So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, these verses are really kind of a gut check for your church what are we here to do? Have we made worship about us? Or have we allowed you to have the center place that you deserve? We're your temple. We're the, where your worship is supposed to take place. Where we're to humbly receive from you your wisdom and not bring our own wisdom into this temple. This is the place where we're to serve one another, not destroy each other. Yet these verses also contain these amazing truths that we are your temple, that your spirit does dwell among us, and that all things are ours because we're in Christ. At the same time, this, these verses also have scary warnings. If anyone destroys your temple, you will destroy them. If anyone thinks he's wise, he must become a fool because you catch the wise in their craftiness. And you prove their thoughts to be futile. So Lord, would you work in our hearts? Pray that we would hear from you in your word. Pray that you would remind us what we're here to do. That we're here to worship you. We're here to receive from you. We're here to serve one another. It's easy to forget those things with all the distractions around us, so remind us of those things. Give us joy as well. This should be a time of joy where we come together and worship you, where we can put aside all the things that are going on in our life and we can remember how good we have it in Christ who gives us all things. So bless our time in your word. Speak to us. May we receive from you. In Christ's name, amen. So he is the center of attention. God is the center of attention in Christ. And so when we come together, we should come ready to do certain things. The first thing we should do is we should come ready to worship because we are God's temple. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Paul starts these verses with what's essentially a mild rebuke. Don't you know? Now think who he's talking to. He's talking to the Corinthians. They pride themselves on the things they know. We know everything. We don't only know spiritual truths. We also know the world's wisdom. We are experts in knowledge. We know everything. And Paul says, well, if you know everything, don't you know that you're a temple of God, the temple of God? See, their knowledge was puffing them up rather than fleshing itself out in love toward one another. So he says, don't you know that you are God's temple? And that is an incredible statement, right? I mean, this, these verses are chock full of just these amazing statements. You could just camp out for weeks on these statements. You are God's temple. Now, when he says you, he means y'all, like us, all of us. We together are God's temple. He's not talking about individually you're a temple of God, though he'll talk about that in chapter 6. 
Here he's saying all y'all are God's temple. We are God's temple. Together, when we come together, we are the temple of God where his spirit dwells among all of us. That's what he's saying. And again, just wrap your mind around that, that we are the dwelling place of God. The God who creates all of this, right? We're just one little planet in one little solar system, in one little galaxy. I mean, they say our galaxy is about 100,000 light years wide. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds like it's pretty big. So we're just kind of this tiny little tiny planet in this tiny solar system in this tiny galaxy of which some scientists say there's over 200 billion galaxies. And God created it with a word like that. Let there be light. And that God wants to dwell with us. That's staggering. I mean, it's also, so it's staggering because of who God is. Maybe it's even more staggering because of who we are. Who are we? That he would want to dwell with us? We're the people that think everything revolves around us. We don't want anything to do with him. I think God's rules, I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what makes me happy. He doesn't know what makes me happy. A people that rejected him, a people that thought living for themselves would be more pleasurable than living for him, a people enslaved to sin with no way out, and yet he wants to dwell with us. And Paul's saying, you Corinthians, you need to bring that truth to mind. What's going on here is incredible. The God who created all things, who doesn't dwell in houses built by human hands, he wants to dwell with you. You are his temple. You are the place where he wants to dwell. He wants you to know him. So why isn't that reflected when you get together? And then think about the contrast, right? Think about the Old Testament temple. How many people could go inside to that inner part of that Old Testament temple? Just one. How often could that one go in? Once a year. Right? And they, they said they tied a rope to his foot in case he died in the presence of God. They could pull him out. Right? Just being in the presence of God. And Paul says, you, gathered church, are God's temple where God dwells. No more sacrifices. No more rigmarole. I mean, think about all the things like that that priest had to wear when he went into that one place, right? Bathe this way. Dress this way. Put this on your chest. Put this on your head. Only go once a year. Make sure that you do sacrifices for your sins before you do sacrifices for anybody else's sins. And now God says, you, church, are my temple where I dwell. God's presence is here in a unique way. And when I say here, I don't mean this building. I mean here, when his people come together, God's presence is here in a unique way. Worship is different when we gather together, right? Hearing him, he shepherds us through his word differently when we're together. He meets our needs differently and uniquely when we're together. The gathered church is his temple. 
That's why it's so important for us to be together. Because we gather to worship, to receive, and to serve in ways that are completely unique. Right? Paul's going to say, you individual are the, te- are the temple of God. Paul has said in other places that you, an individual, has the Spirit of God. So what he's saying here is that God dwells with us in a different way when we're together, in a unique way. And God's Spirit dwells among us in a different way, in a unique way when we gather together. We are God's temple. And this is a corrective to the Corinthians and maybe to us who sometimes think church is more of just a social club. Oh, I come and I see my friends and we all sort of think the same, do the same things, and we just have a good time together. That's not the church. Or maybe sometimes people think church is like a country club where it's just the elite, right? The special people get together, right? We don't want to have anything to do with these other people. We're the church. We are this special group. Or oftentimes people think church is like a philosophical society where we just discuss theology and the ways of the world and we just sort of compare notes on what I believe, what you believe, what you know, what I know. Or at worst, sometimes we think church is a debate club where we come and fight with each other over the things that we think are true or not true or that those bad Christians out there think are true or not true. No, the church is God's gathered people where we come to worship him and we come to receive from him and we come to serve him by serving one another it's all about him he's the center of attention not us and God's spirit dwells within us in a unique way when we gather together and that's again that's an amazing thing because in the garden of Eden Adam and Eve had the most unique experience they walked with God They were in his presence. And what sin did is it cast them out of God's presence. And think through all of Old Testament history. You can't get to God in the same way anymore. Think about the mountain. Who got to go up the mountain? One person, Moses. What was going to happen to the other people if they even touched the mountain? They would die. So one person has access to God. And everyone else would die if they even got close. Or again, you think about the tabernacle, the temple. Only a select few got to go into the presence of God, and everyone else was outside. And then think of the exile, when because of Israel's disobedience, they actually didn't even get access to the temple anymore. They were kicked out of the promised land. They had no way of getting to God And that's where the beauty of the new covenant comes in. That's what communion is all about. Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood where I will put my spirit in my people and they will be my people and I will be their God. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we have as new covenant believers. We have access to God. God's here right now. He's here in a unique way right now that even he's not with you necessarily in the same way when you go out from this building. It's unique. It's special. We should want to be here. And so why do you come to church? Fundamentally, it should be, I want to come to meet with my God. 
I want to come to worship him. I want to come to remember all that he's done. I don't come out of duty. This is delight. And we need to remind ourselves of these things. Because it's easy. I know myself. I just, it's easy just to kind of walk in the door and go through the motions. I come in. I come in every Sunday. I sit down. I sit in the same place I do every Sunday. I start singing because that's what I do every Sunday. And are we here just sort of singing with each other? Or are we here worshiping God? Is he the center of our attention? What God has done in Christ should be the center of our attention, and the Corinthians forgot that. And what was supposed to be this wonderful weekly celebration of all that God has done turned into an occasion for boasting, division, and pride because man became the center of the gathered church rather than God. And so remember, when we come to church, we come to worship because we are his dwelling place. Secondly, we should also come ready to serve because God will destroy those that destroy his temple. Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's kind of a scary verse. God's going to destroy someone that destroys his temple. Now, when we say temple, what are we talking about? Are we talking about this building, right? Like if a teenager comes along and tags our building, that God's going to destroy him for destroying this beautiful building? No, who's the temple? You. So who are the people that are, when you're destroying God's temple, what are you destroying? People, right? Not a building. You're destroying people. And how do you destroy people? Division. Pride, making our gatherings about us instead of God. Anytime you have a negative impact on the spiritual well-being of another person in God's house, you're destroying his temple. You know, God takes sin a lot more seriously than we take sin. We think, oh yeah, it's all forgiven, I can confess it, no problem. But think about how God takes the sins that you commit, especially against God's people. I mean, what kind of sins is Paul talking about in this letter? Division. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. You start dividing God's church, what are you do doing? You're destroying it. Chapter 5, there's a man who's in gross sin, and no one confronts him about it. And I don't think that Paul's, you know, super, you know, that his primary concern is that sin doesn't belong in the house of God. Paul knows there'll always be sinners in the house. But his concern is, well, why does no one love him enough to come and tell him he's in sin and call him to repentance? Are you loving the brother by doing that, or are you destroying the brother by allowing him to continue in sin? You're destroying him. They're using their liberties. They don't care what it effect it has on other people. You know, some people are sensitive to meat offered to idols. Oh, who cares? I'm going to eat it anyway. I mean, these are the sins that Paul's talking about. These are the destructive sins that Paul's talking about. Clicks in the church. He talks about that in chapter 11. Excluding others. These are the things that destroy the church. And what does God say he's going to do to people that destroy his church? He's going to destroy them. 
I mean, how seriously do we take avoiding people at church that we think are too much effort to interact with? How seriously do we take the fact that we prefer our friends and that we only gather with certain people at church rather than embracing the whole body? How seriously do we take it when we let someone continue in sin without talking to them about it? Again, we think, oh, no big deal. God says, those kinds of things destroy my church, and if you destroy my church, I'll destroy you. Now, you might think, well, what kind of destruction is God talking about? Like, am I going to lose my salvation? I think Paul, he's a little bit vague, and I think that's intentional. Now, if you're an unbeliever and you destroy God's church and God destroys you, you will face eternal destruction. But even for a believer, death is not off the table when it comes to God destroying even his own people in that sense. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's all through Scripture, right? You think about the Old Testament, the sons of Aaron, right? Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? They offered strange fire to God. In other words, they didn't worship God the way that he prescribed. They sort of chose to do it their own way. And what did God do? He killed them. And we think, well, that's the Old Testament. That's like the angry God. We're in the New Testament. He doesn't do that anymore. Well, what about Acts chapter 5? The birth of his church. And Ananias and Sapphira, they come to the apostles and say, hey, look at this. We sold our property, and here's all the money that we got. We lay it before you. Was that true? Nope. They held back some for themselves. Was God upset that they held back some for themselves? No. He was upset that they lied. They said, oh, we're, like, we're these super spiritual people. We give it all to God, when in fact they were holding it back for themselves. And what did God do? He killed them. Even in the church in Corinth, he says in chapter 11, some of you are coming to the communion table in an unworthy way. And he says, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. He made people sick. He killed people because they celebrated communion in an unworthy way. And we might look at that and think, like, God, what's the big deal? Like, they gave most of the money, or, you know, like, they're still celebrating communion. Well, the big deal is that it shows that God was not the focus of their worship. Nadab and Abihu, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't care how God prescribes it. I'm going to worship the way I want to. Ananias and Sapphira, I want a better reputation. So who's it about? It's about them. It's not about God when they gave. The Corinthians, when they get together for communion, it's just a social thing where I want to hang out with my friends and exclude all these other people. Who was the center of attention? They were, not God. And that is a big deal. When sin gets mixed with worship, that's a big deal. Because at the end of verse 17, it says, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. If God were the center of attention, Nadab and Abihu would have been careful to worship the way that God described. Ananias and Sapphira would have found no reason to lie about their giving, because it's not about them, it's about God. And the Corinthians would have sought to remove any stumbling block to somebody else's worship, if it was about God. 
and not about them. What Paul's saying is you should be different than the world. When we gather together, it shouldn't be like the world. It shouldn't be like the haves and the have-nots. It shouldn't be like, let me go hang out with the people that I like and exclude the people I don't like. It shouldn't be a place where it's like, yeah, I, I know somebody's in sin, but, you know, they'll figure it out. I don't care. No, it should be a place where we love each other, where we value each other. When we see someone in sin, and we know that that sin will destroy them, so we go to them in love. It's not supposed to be a place where we play favorites. It's supposed to be a place where we see that there is value for e in every single believer. Every single believer is vital to the well-functioning of God's church. It's not supposed to be a place where I don't care if my actions affect you. It should be a place where I lay down my rights to bless you. You are that temple. You are the temple of God. And so shouldn't you look like him? That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, and God is saying it to us. That we come to serve, we come to worship, we don't come for us. And then next, well, even before we move on, I mean, think about how that impacts your Sunday. I'm here to serve. So when you come on Sunday, do you just hang out with the people you always hang out with? Or do you welcome new people? If you're a servant, if you're here to serve, you welcome new people. You share your burdens. You pray for others. You encourage others. We should ne there should never be a church where people duck in like 10 minutes after it started so I don't have to interact with anyone. And then I duck out like a few minutes. Maybe when the pastor starts praying, I can duck out so that I avoid having to interact with God's people. It's like, we're the dwelling place of God. Why would we want to leave? Why would we be on a rush to get out the door? They should have to kick us out of this place. Like, if God dwells with us in a unique way, and every individual is supposed to be a blessing to me, and I'm a blessing to them, why would I ever want to leave? Come to worship. Come to serve. Come to be with God's people and experience his presence in a unique way. He's the center of our attention. And then third, come ready to receive from God because all things are yours in verses 18 to 23. He's, he wants you to think, when I come to church, I don't come thinking I have it all together. I know everything. I come, God has everything together. <laughs> God knows everything. I need that. I don't have it in and of myself. I need his wisdom. So when I come to church, I come ready. I want to hear from him. I know that my wisdom, I can't build my life on my wisdom. I need to build it on his wisdom. So do you come to church acknowledging that you are in desperate need for God's wisdom? Have you seen the futility of your own wisdom? And you need his do you come to church with a tender heart, with a life ready to be shaped by God's word and God's people? That's what Paul's saying. We, we come in humility. We want to receive from God. We're needy, and he has everything. Verse 18, that's what he says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he might become wise. Paul says there's a danger of self-deception. 
when you come to church. There's a danger that you come to church thinking, I already know everything that I need to know. And he says, don't come to church that way. Don't come thinking, I've got my life exactly where I want it. I've got it all figured out. I don't need to hear from God. Thank you very much. My life is fine. I don't need to change. That's not how we should come to church. And I think what he's getting at, especially in the Corinthian context, but in our context as well, is that there's always an allure to have the best of both worlds. Lord, I come to church because I want forgiveness of my sins. I want eternal life. But I also want the good life here and now. I want, you know, money and power and prestige. And I just, that's what I want. I want the best of both worlds. This is the person where God actually revolves around them instead of the other way around. That their life hasn't really changed, and frankly, they don't really want it to. Because I just want God to give me forgiveness and eternal life and then leave me on my way so that I can go do whatever I want. And these people, they might even fight you tooth and nail about their salvation, but they don't come to church to receive God's wisdom. They think it's old-fashioned, you know, that I, I can figure out what my best life is going to look like right now. And they come to church really to get God to bless their agenda rather than to get on God's agenda. I mean, you think about David and Goliath. You can even start to hear Bible stories that way, Right? Oh, David's fighting Goliath. Like, yeah, and, and David, you know, God will fight your battles for you. You know, what are the giants in your life? You have a hard boss. You have a difficult situation at work. Well, God can come to your, on your side, and he'll give you the victory. Is that what David and Goliath is about? No. Did God get on David's side? No. David got on God's side, right? David saw the battle as Goliath is taunting God. Which side do I want to be on? Goliath's side or God's side? David said, I'm going to get on God's side. And that's why he had victory. Not because he asked God to bless his life and to give him what he wanted and defeat my battles for me. No, God, I want to be on your agenda. And when I'm on your agenda, there's going to be victory. But it's going to be your victories for your purposes, not for mine. And that's what we need. We need God's wisdom, not our wisdom. We don't want the best of both worlds. We only want what God says. Now, related to that, there's also an allure of thinking that we have something to offer God. And this might be the person who actually is quite active in the church, but it comes from a place of thinking that really, I, God has some needs and I have something that I can offer God to help him out in his work that he's doing. And David actually fell into this. The very same David that got on God's side fighting Goliath fell into this trap of thinking, I have these great things to offer God. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's worth turning there. 2 Samuel 7. Verse 1 says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, 
but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What's David saying, essentially? He's saying, look at me. I live in this great house, and poor God, poor God is in a tent. I'm going to help God out. I'm going to build him a house so that he doesn't have to dwell in this tent anymore. That's what David's saying. And Nathan falls into that. He says, like, yeah, that sounds good. You should do that. You help God out. You build him a house so that he doesn't have to dwell in a tent anymore. Now, how does God respond to this? Look back at verse 1. How is David described in verse 1? When the king, verse 2, the king, verse 3, Nathan said to the king. Now, they put their little plan together in verse 4. But that same night... Like, God didn't wait a week to tell them this is a bad idea or a month. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Look what he says. Go and tell who? Not the king. Go and tell my servant, David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people and say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. What's God saying? You don't build houses for me. I build houses for you. You don't help me out. I need no assistance. I am God. I don't dwell in houses made by human hands. We have nothing to offer him. He has everything to offer us. So when we come to church, let's think that way. I need to receive from God. That's how we should come. Not, I have it all figured out. My wisdom's fine. God bless my plans. I'm going to do great things for you. No, 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 no. We come to receive from him. At the heart of this is all a danger of thinking that our wisdom is better than God's wisdom. And that's the greatest danger of all. We start to think, I'm the best judge of what is good and needful and useful and beautiful in the church, in my life, whatever it is. You know, we all have a teenage tendency in us when it comes to God. As teenagers, we think what? Our parents don't know anything. They're not living in the real world. They got like their jobs and they do like boring parent stuff. Like they don't know what it's like to live in this world. I know what it's like. Like their counsel, their ideas, like it's so outdated. They have no idea. And that's how we can be with God. 
God, you don't know what it's like living this life. Your rules, they're like from like hundreds and thousands of years ago. It's like they can't possibly apply today. Like it's so old, it's so outdated. I, have, I think I have a little better idea than God about how to live my life. And Paul's saying, do not deceive yourself. Verse 18, if anyone thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. If you come in thinking, I've got it all figured out, my life is just where I want it, you need to become a fool so that you might become wise. And to say that to the Corinthians, who valued worldly wisdom and knowledge above everything else, was a shocking remedy to their situation. One commentator said, to be foolish in Corinthian society was tantamount to social suicide. And Paul says, no, that's the answer to your problem. You need to become a fool. Because the world's wisdom promotes self. It promotes power. It promotes me first. I don't care what happens to you. It's pride. And this is how the Corinthians were acting. And Paul says, if that's wisdom, then you need to become a fool. The world's wisdom says, I'm going to build my reputation at the expense of other people. God's wisdom says, I'm going to make much of his reputation by serving people. And, of course, Christ is the ultimate example of that. Turn back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When Paul says, be foolish, become a fool, he means, think like Jesus. Verse 18, chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Look at verse 22. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Think like Christ. Become a fool. That's what he means. Think like Jesus. See the cross as the ultimate display of power and wisdom. And think like that. Humility, gentleness, service, love. Don't use your power, your influence, your gifts, or skills to prop yourself up. Use them to serve other people the way that Jesus did. Define greatness in humble service. Don't look for the people that are going to benefit you. You look for people that you can be a benefit to. In other words, think like Jesus. Let the cross be the shape of your life. The cross, it's not just the object of our faith. It's not just the thing that saves us. It's the thing that should shape us. It should totally change our way of life. That it becomes our value system. This is how I live now. The cross, I don't just put my faith in it. I actually live like that. That's what Jesus came to do, to free us to do those things. Father's Day was last week, and Rhonda and the kids got me some great gifts for Father's Day. Uh, one of the greatest gifts was they decorated my office downstairs, so I'd been here about a year, hadn't really decorated it a whole lot. Uh, so they bought a nice carpet to put underneath the table and chairs, and so that kind of dressed things up a little bit. 
Uh, they put some kind of little knickknacks and things on the shelves so it wouldn't just be books, 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 books. You know, have some little break things up a little bit. But the best gift of all was a framed Bible verse that's on the wall in my office. And it says this, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That should be the verse that's on all of our walls. That's what we're here to do. We're here to follow our Savior, who didn't come to be served. He actually deserved to be served. We don't even deserve to be served. But he didn't come to be served, but to serve, even to the point of giving his life to ransom us. And that should be how we live our lives. The very same way. That's wisdom. To live like that is wisdom. There's no better plan for your life than to live like Jesus. And you think like, well, that can't work, right? If I live for other people, then how, what's going to happen to me? I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. What happened to Jesus when he lived for other people? He laid down his life, but then what did God do? He raised him up. And he exalted him to the highest place. That's what it says in Philippians 2. We can trust that God knows how to meet our needs when we seek to meet other people's needs. Seek first his kingdom. He'll make sure that you have everything that you need. So live that way. Become a fool that way. And then he gives a negative reason. Why should we do it in verse 19? For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So the first reason he gives why you should live like that is because if you try to live any other way, God will catch you. Like, don't think, I can come in here, I can do best of both worlds, I can have forgiveness, I can have eternal life, then I can live however I want. God says, no, 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 no. I'll catch you in your craftiness. And I'll prove that that way of life is futile. That's what is sure to happen to you if you live that way. But Paul has an even greater encouragement why we shouldn't live that way in verse 21. He says, so let no one boast in men, right? Don't let yourself or men ever become the center of attention. Keep the center of attention on God. Let no one boast in men. Why should I do that? For all things are yours. Now, what does that mean? All things are yours. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that when you're in Christ, you own everything. So why would you say, I'm going to follow Paul and I'm not going to follow Apollos. I'm not going to follow Cephas. Paul's saying, that's ridiculous. All of them are yours. They are all serving you. So why would you follow one and push off the other two when all are for your benefit? Why would you cut yourself off from your help? They're, it's all for you. Everyone is for All these servants are for you. They're all for you. Like, Paul doesn't want a following. Apollos doesn't want a following. Cephas doesn't want a following. They're not looking for servants. They're looking to be your servants, all of them. So why would you divide them? You know, Paul didn't write this letter to gain followers. He did it to serve the saints, 
right? He doesn't write to say, like, I'm an apostle. You have to do what I say. I own you. No, he's writing as a servant. And so are all of these other leaders. And even today, when you think about your pastors and leaders, you don't belong to us. We belong to you. You know, fellow elders, staff, deacons, ministry leaders, did you hear that? These dear people, they don't belong to us. We belong to them. We're their servants. They don't serve us. We serve them. We lay down our lives for them. You think, where would Paul get a concept like that? That leaders aren't here to be served, but to serve, even to the point of laying down their life for others. Right? All of these things exist to serve you. All of these people exist to serve you for your benefit. But then the amazing thing is Paul doesn't just stop at Paul, Apollos, and Cephas are for you. He says the world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. The present, the future, all are yours. The world doesn't own you. You actually own the world. Three more chapters from now, Paul's going to say that very thing. Don't you know? He's going to use another don't you know. Don't you know that you're going to judge the world? You own the world because Christ does. Which reminds us, you're not the victim of your worldly circumstances. Your worldly circumstances are actually here to serve you. You might think, well, why was I born into this family? Why was I born this color? Why was I born this gender? And you might think that these things are harming you or hindering you in some way. But no, Paul's saying all of these things actually serve you. They're for your benefit. You were born into this family for your benefit. You were born the color you are for your benefit. You were born the gender you are for your benefit. All these things, they're for you. None of it was by chance. None of it was by accident. If you're in Christ, all things work together for your good. So he says that about the world. He says that about life. Every moment of this life is designed for your benefit. Every conversation, whether good or hard, is for your benefit. Every circumstance, good or bad, is for your benefit. Everything, every moment of your life is for you. It's for your benefit. And then he says, even death is your servant. Death is for you. And you think, death? Like, how could death be my servant? Well, think about how death serves you. When you see somebody else die, what does it do for you? It sobers you. It reminds you, what is this life really all about? What am I going to spend my life on? Death is serving you. Think about when you die. Death is going to free you from this world. Do you want to remain in this world forever? Do you want to be here, absent from the Lord, but present in the body? No. I want to be with him. And death is your servant. It brings you to him. Listen to this from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, Death, I have often trembled at you. In midnight hours, I have thought it must be terrible to die. And I have shaken at your pale apparition. O oh, death, your ghastly appearance has sometimes frightened me. 
I have striven to run away from you, but you are my slave now, and I will not tremble at you anymore. Death, you are mine. I write you down among my goods and shadows as part of my property. Take heed how you try to make your master tremble, for you are not my master, death. I am yours. He goes on, you will not be afraid of death if you love the Lord. If you knew death, believer, you would not be afraid of it, but you would feel it to be a joyous thing. You're thinking of that lonely chamber where the friends stand by your side when you bid them all adieu. You're thinking of the pains and groans and strife and the dread solemnity of that last hour. But think not of such things. Think that the Lord will come to meet you, for he will come, and your soul will stretch its wings in haste and fly away to heaven. Oh, it is a cheering thing to stand by when a Christian dies, to see him stand on the precipice of life, clapping his wings before he takes flight, not into a vast unknown, but into a sea of light and love in which he floats until he reaches the gates of paradise. It is doubly sweet and blessed to witness such a spectacle of joy. Death is ours then, so we will not fear it, for it is indeed a privilege one day to die. Death is ours. We don't belong to it. It belongs to us, and it serves us. We could go on. He says, the present serves you. If you're experiencing prosperity, that's good, but make sure that you own it, that it doesn't own you. If you're experiencing adversity, it's to serve you. Trials are your treasures. Spurgeon would say that the caverns of sorrow are the mines of diamonds every trial. It actually serves you. It's for you. It's for your benefit, your future, whether the future of this life and, of course, the future in the next will be for you. It's for your benefit. So Paul says, don't cut yourself off from these benefits. If you start to divide and say, I'm Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, you're cutting yourself off from your help. These things are all for you. Now think about this in the context of the church. Now you may like a certain preacher more than another. As long as it's me, that's okay. <laughs> but it may just be that the preacher you like the least is the one that you need the most. They're all for you. We're all for you. Or think about the person you see in the lobby that has caused you so much grief. And you just want to like turn your head and go the other way. That person may very well be God's greatest gift to you. Because God will use that person to shape you into the image of his son. All these things are for you. Everything in your life, every single thing in your life, every circumstance, every person, it's all for you. Now, how does that happen? It's not just for you because it's for you. It's for you because of what he says in verse 23. All are yours because, you could say, you are Christ. You are Christ. Which is another amazing verse that it's like you could just spend years just contemplating that thought. You are Christ. 
Now, there's two ways of seeing that truth. One way is to say, well, I must be really special then. If Christ went out of his way to lay down his life for me, I must be really something awesome. But of course, we know that's not the case. The real way to see that is Christ must be infinitely gracious that I could belong to him. All things are yours because you are Christ's. Every spiritual blessing that you receive, you receive it because you're in Christ. How is it that the world is yours? Because it's his. How is it that life is yours? Because it's his. How is it that death is yours? Because he conquered it. How is the present and the future yours? Because he rules over all things. You get all of these blessings because you are in Christ. And of course, the question is then, how did I get to be his? And the answer to that is just pure grace. You didn't do anything. In fact, you did the opposite of earning your way to salvation. You were running away from him. And yet the father in eternity past said, I want to give a people to my son. And he chose you. He says, I want you to be the gift that I give to my son. And he will lay down his life for you. And he will purchase you. And you think those things are amazing. And those things are amazing because I know me. And I didn't want those gifts. I knew the Father's plan. I knew the Son's gift. But I cursed him. I mocked him. I didn't want anything to do with him. I was like the Corinthians. I thought my wisdom was better than God's wisdom. I knew his commands and I rejected them. I rejected him. So how is it that we, a sinful people, could possibly find ourselves belonging to Christ? Just sheer grace and mercy. And so that's the biggest question that I'll ask all of you. Do you belong to him? If you do, then all these things are yours. They're here to serve you. But if you're not, you have to come to him. Because those things won't serve you. They'll actually destroy you if you don't belong to him. And you can belong to him. And all you have to say is, I'm not the center of the universe. You have to agree with him. I don't know what's best for me. I don't have wisdom. You have all wisdom. You are the center of the universe. Lord, would you forgive me for believing those things? And then you put your faith in Christ that he died the death that your sin deserved. And when you do that, you will become his. And all these things will belong to you. And you will be Christ's. And at the end of verse 23, we're reminded that Christ is God's. So that all worship and glory resound back to the Father for planning his salvation. That doesn't mean that Christ isn't God. He absolutely is God. But all praise is one day going to go back to the Father who planned this whole salvation for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 talks about this day. It says, When all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. Why? So that God may be all in 
all. Even Christ is going to lay down everything at his Father's feet and give him praise and glory. So we end these verses the same way we started it. It's all about him. He's the center of our attention. He gets all the glory. And it's our delight to come together to worship him, to receive from him, and to serve him by serving one another. So why would we want to make our gathering about anything else? It's all about him. Keep him the center of attention and all these things, they're yours. They'll serve you every single day for the rest of your life until you're with him face to face. Let's pray. Father, all we can say is who are we? Who are we that you would send your son for us? And who are we that he would come and take on a body and allow that body to be beaten and hung on a cross so that we could receive forgiveness? And you didn't do these things because we were begging you to save us. You did these things when we were your enemy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How could we possibly belong to Christ? And Lord, thank you that you give us your word, that you humble us, that you remind us who we are, and you remind us who you are, because we need to remember that you are glorious, that all praise and glory will resound to you. So Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to believe that we are your temple, that you gather with us in a special way. You're here with us right now in a special, unique way because you love to be with your people. And the same spirit that searches the depths of who you are is dwelling among us right now. So let us worship you and let us humbly receive from you and let us humbly serve one another, not just today, but every day. We're so thankful to be your people. We pray all this in Christ's name for your glory. Amen.